Welcome to the Diet Doctor Podcast with Dr. Brett Schur. Today, it's my pleasure to be joined by Dr. David Ludwig. Now, Dr. Ludwig is a pediatric endocrinologist at Boston Children's Hospital with affiliations at Harvard, and he's the director of the New Balance Foundation Obesity Prevention Center. He's also the author of Always Hungry. And Dr. Ludwig has great experience both as a clinician taking care of children and seeing the epidemic of obesity and type 2 diabetes affecting children. And also he's very involved in research and sort of helping us understand the problems and complexity of nutritional research and helping change the paradigm of how we can fund and design nutritional research studies to make them more worthwhile. So we're not relying on poor epidemiologic studies and we're not relying on industry-funded studies as well, but trying to bridge that gap of industry in the sense of food production, but not biased industry with a stake in the outcome, combining with research to really help us answer this question, the questions of is a calorie a calorie uh, or the carbohydrate insulin model? How does that affect us as individuals in the free living world? And how does that affect our health? And ultimately, how can that affect our policy to help us stem this epidemic of diabetes, obesity, chronic health disease, and help us reverse that course? Now, David, he he is a source of reason. In, in today's society, with so much polarity, with science being more like religion, with people so steeped in their own beliefs that they're not willing to see the other side, David tries to help bridge that gap and say, look, we're all fighting for the same thing. We all want to improve health. Now, how can we foster this conversation so that we can have a more reasonable debate, a more reasonable understanding of the situation to find a solution? So I hope you get that from his message, and I hope you appreciate that as much as I do. Enjoy this interview with Dr. David Ludwig. Hi, everybody. Before we get to the interview with Dr. David Ludwig, I just wanted to give a quick update. We filmed this interview the very first weekend of November, and two weeks later, his study was published in, uh, in BMJ. So when you're a researcher, you're not supposed to talk about your study until it's been published. So unfortunately, during the interview, we referenced the study a few times, but can't get into any of the details because it hadn't been published yet. But now that it's been published, I want to give you some of the details about it so you'll have that in your brain as you're listening to this interview. Now, in my mind, this was one of the best studies done to look at the quality of calories and how it affects energy expenditure. Uh, what they did was... Uh, he took 164 adults with body mass index of 25 or greater, and they had a two-week run-in period where they all had the same diet, all lost the same amount of weight. Then he randomized them to one of three groups, 20% carbohydrates, 40% carbohydrates, or 60% carbohydrates, keeping the protein fixed so the only variables were the fat and the carbohydrates. Okay, but here's the best part. They supplied every single meal to the participants, over 100,000 meals and snacks, costing more than $12 million. And that's where I think one of the biggest strengths of this study, because it takes away one of the largest variables in nutrition studies, which is what did the subjects actually eat? We can recommend whatever we want, but what are they actually going to eat? Well, this study, they supplied the food, so we know exactly what they were eating. And it's a great example of the way nutrition studies should be done. Well, what did they find? They found that in the group that ate the lowest carbohydrates, the 20% carbohydrates, compared to the highest, the 60%, the lowest carbohydrates expended somewhere between 200 and 260 calories more during the day. Their energy expenditure went up, 
without more exercise, without more physical activity, their energy expenditure went up. And if you look at the subset that had the highest baseline insulin, they went up by over 300 calories per day. So the conclusion is pretty clear. The quality of calories do matter, and it does make a difference in your energy expenditure. Just 300 calories a day can make a tremendous difference in overall weight loss. So in my opinion, this was one of the best and most well-done studies to look at this question with a pretty clear answer. All right, now with those details, now we can go on with the interview uh, with Dr. David Ludwig. Dr. David Ludwig, thank you so much for joining me on the Diet Doctor podcast today. Pleasure to be with you. Now, as a pediatric endocrinologist, you have had a front row seat to this evolving tide of obesity and diabetes. And as an adult doctor, I see it and it's awful. But as a pediatrician, it must be heartbreaking to see this evolution of this disease just take off in front of your eyes. Well, indeed it is. Um, this is a generation that uh, has excessive weight, more of it from earlier in life than ever before. And uh, the consequences to both body uh, and emotional well-being, you know, can be tragic. Right. Um, we, of course, there's been a lot of attention to type 2 diabetes in adults, but children are now getting type 2 diabetes. This is unprecedented. When I was training as a pediatric endocrinologist, you know, type 1 diabetes was 90%, and occasionally you'd see a, a case or two of MODI, some of these rare genetic um, causes of diabetes. But uh, at least among adolescents, type 2 diabetes is uh, uh, about a third in uh, minority populations, type 2 diabetes can be half or more of new onsets. Yeah. And, you know, think about it that it's one thing for an adult who's gaining excessive weight to develop type 2 diabetes at age 50 and then suffer heart attack, stroke, or kidney failure at age 60. I mean, that's bad enough. But if the, if the clock starts ticking at age 10, we're talking about a profoundly different situation. Yeah, I read that the diagnosis of diabetes at age 10 has a worse outcome than the diagnosis of leukemia. I mean, that kind of puts it into perspective as to how, how serious this is. And I mean, we can point to a number of different reasons as to why this happened, but it, it seems like the primary one is processed foods, sugars, and just too much of it. Now, a lot of people focus on the sugars themselves, and some people focus more on sort of the glycemic index. Now, not to put you in a box, but you seem to be more of the glycemic index camp. Is that is that true, or tell me a little more I about that? I think that'd be a bit too much of a box. Okay. But, but, but stepping back a little bit more, you know, there's certainly no consensus that sugars or processed carbohydrates, um, whichever side of that box one is in, is in fact the cause. At least there's no consensus among the conventional nutrition community, that uh, the basic teaching is that all calories are m metabolically alike. The main problem is obesity. And we just have to get people to eat less and move more. They'll attain a healthy weight and the problem will take care of itself. Um, now that's, of course, disregarding much evidence that food independent of its calorie content affects our hormones, metabolism, and even the expression of our genes in ways that would importantly influence not just the likelihood that we would succeed with weight loss and avoid obesity, uh, but also our risks for type 2 diabetes, 
cardiovascular disease, even cancer at any given body weight. Right. So for those of us who are in this camp of understanding that it's more than just eating less and moving more, it's it's almost mind-boggling that the the sort of mainstream dietary community does not embrace that. And so that's when we have to look to the science and say, what does the science say? And you and your group did a study to show that calories do matter. And so if I can, you probably know the details better than I do, but you had a 21 overweight patients um, and you had a run-in period where they had a 10% weight loss. And then you had different isocaloric regimens that they were eating and you provided the food for them. And it was based on their percentage of carbohydrates. And what you found was the lowest percent carbohydrates had the highest increase in their resting energy expenditure by 325 calories per day. That seems conclusive. The type of food you eat affects your resting metabolic rate. So it's not, and it was isochloric, so it's not simply calories in, calories out. So why doesn't a study like that change the paradigm? Okay, well, first off, uh, no single study is conclusive and definitive, and we can talk about that in a moment. But let me provide the broader context. On the one hand, uh, obesity treatment has focused on so-called calorie balance. Uh, Eat less, move more, doesn't matter how you do it, and that is the primary focus both for public health uh, as well as treatment in the clinic. So an alternative paradigm, um, which we've been developing along with others, is called the carbohydrate insulin model. Now, it focuses on carbohydrate and insulin but because you, you need a name for something, but it's not a single nutrient, single hormone hypothesis. It's, it proposes that we've had it backwards, that overeating doesn't cause obesity over the long term, that the process of getting fat causes us to overeat. Now, that's a little hard for the mind to hold, but think about it. Uh, think about what happens in pregnancy. A woman um, typically eats a lot more. She's hungry. She has food cravings. She eats more. And the fetus is growing. But which is coming first? Is the overeating causing the fetus to grow? Or is the growing fetus that's taking up extra calories triggering the mother to be hungry and eat more. You know, of course the latter. We understand it. The same, tr- same is true for an adolescent in a growth spurt. You know, you and I, no matter how much we eat, aren't going to force our bodies to get, get t- any taller, unfortunately. <laughs> it's the process of getting taller in that adolescent in the growth spurt that's causing him or her to eat hundreds or sometimes thousands of calories more than would otherwise be the case. So that's obvious in those situations. Why not consider the possibility that a rapidly growing fat mass that's being triggered to take in too many calories could be the cause of excessive hunger um, and the overeating that follows? That's the carbohydrate insulin model. We focus on carbohydrates because they've flooded our diet in the last 40 years during the low-fat years. Carbohydrates, especially the processed kinds, sugar, but just as much or perhaps even more so, uh, the refined starches, uh, raise insulin. And insulin, you know, I I call insulin the miracle grow for your fat cells, Mm -hmm. just not the sort of miracle you want happening in your body. You know, insulin, fat cells don't do much of anything until they're told what to do by hormones. And insulin is is the most potent anabolic 
hormone. It promotes fat cell store, calorie storage at fat cells. It inhibits release of fat from the fat cells. States of excess insulin action consistently lead to weight gain, you know, such as mutations that lead to overproduction of insulin or in type 2 diabetes where uh, insulin is started. Weight gain consistently occurs. And the opposite is also true. States of inadequate insulin action, such as type 1 diabetes, a child first coming to attention who, because of an autoimmune attack on the beta cells, can't make enough insulin, that child will have invariably lost weight before treatment, whether he or she is eating 3,000, 5,000, or 7,000 calories a day. Now, if you don't have diabetes, the fastest way to change your insulin levels is with the amount and type of carbohydrate you're consuming. But beyond carbohydrate, protein, the types of fats we're eating, micronutrients, fiber, the state of our gut microbiome, and non-dietary factors like a sleep deprivation, mm -hmm. stress, and an excessively sedentary life. All of these things affect fat cell function and determine whether the calories we're eating are uh, shunted a little bit more towards storage rather than oxidation. All you have to do is store a few grams of extra fat a day to mean the difference between staying lean and becoming uh, substantially, uh, having a substantial problem with obesity uh, after 10 years. So our, going back to the study, we, um, right, we brought people's weights down to stress out their body uh, adaptive mechanisms. These were people who had high body weight at baseline, brought their weight down by uh, at least 10%. And then we randomly assigned them to either a, an Atkins-type low-carb diet, a high-carb diet with 60% carbohydrate, or something in the middle, kind of a 40% 40, 40 fat, 40% carbohydrate Mediterranean diet. And everybody got each of these diets for a month, and we measured energy expenditure, both resting and um, total energy expenditure by uh, a method called doubly labeled water. And that we found that dis despite the weight loss on the low-carb diet, there was no decline in total energy expenditure at all. You know, we know that typically the body adapts to weight loss by becoming more efficient, and that makes losing weight harder and harder. But there was none of that ad adaptation on the low-carb diet, a potentially tremendous advantage to losing weight. On the high-carb diet, energy expenditure plummeted by more than 400 calories a day. So that difference of 325 calories uh, would translate into um, 35 pounds, perhaps, of weight loss without any change in calorie intake. So that's the difference between being lean and being obese right there, just that one difference. Potentially, you know, a, a big part of the difference. And if you get changes in hunger, mm -hmm. if you get lower hunger and fewer food cravings on a low-carbohydrate diet, has been reported in other studies, the effects could be potentially even larger. So why, you know, so this was a study that was published in JAMA. It certainly got considerable attention. You know, it, it itself has limitations. It's just one study. It needs to be reproduced. And there are uh, a, a group from the NIH published a sort of uh, rebuttal, uh, a counterattack uh, on this hypothesis and on the study, reviewing other studies of diet composition and energy expenditure, claiming that there was no effect. 
And uh, this meta-analysis by the NIH group um, was uh, used to claim that they had, quote, literally the term used was falsified the carbohydrate insulin model. Now, if you look at the studies that were included in this meta-analysis, virtually all of them, with just uh, maybe three exceptions, uh, 20, 20 or more studies, were two weeks or less. Okay, so the folks in the low-carb movement are immediately going to understand that when you cut back carbohydrate, especially into the ketogenic range, as some of these studies did, um, you, you need to allow the body to undergo an adaptive process. You've cut off carbohydrates, which is the main source of fuel for the brain, but yet ketones have not re yet reached steady state. The classic starvation studies by Cahill and all and others showed that ketones with complete fasting, with starvation, don't reach steady state until about two to three weeks afterward. And, and how long was your study? Ours was a month. A month. Right. So ours was long enough to see these adaptive changes, right. but almost all of the other studies published didn't. And so if you've cut off carbohydrate, but you're, you're not yet adapted to that, low, to that high fat diet, what's going to happen? You're going to feel tired, right. um, you know, physically tired, mentally a little sloggy. We have a name for this. It's called the keto flu. Um, very well described. There are dozens of papers showing that it takes several weeks. And if you conduct your study during that short period of time of adaptation, you know, of course you're not going to see the full benefits of a low-carbohydrate diet. In fact, you might see some adverse effects. But I would make the comparison to a scientist wanting to study the effects of intense physical training on a sedentary population. You take a group of 45-year-old men who, uh, who are overweight, sit around all day watching TV, and suddenly you're giving them six hours a day of uh, physical activity boot camp. You know, they're running uh, track, they're doing calisthenics, they're yeah. engaged in contact sports six hours a day, and then you measure them three days later. What are you going to see? They're going to feel awful. They're going to feel tired. Their muscles are going to be sore. They're going to have decreased physical abilities. If you had concluded at that point that physical training worsened fitness, um, you would be doing the same thing that these uh, very short-term low-carbohydrate diet studies are doing, that they're missing the boat. So we need longer studies. Our study and uh, the, the, the only the two or three others to date that are... Uh, of a month duration, show benefit to the low-carb diet. Now, I'll say we need longer studies, and we've just completed one. Um, we'll be presenting the first public, we'll be unveiling the public result, the results of the study to the public at the Obesity Society meetings in November. Uh, we'll be doing so on November 14th. And uh, this is a study that uh, actually cost $12 million. It was done with uh, uh, philanthropy. Uh, NIH, unfortunately, doesn't typically fund nutrition studies of the size. Um, and it the uh, after weight loss, same design as uh, initial weight loss phase, in this case, we studied three diets parallel. So you just got into one diet, either 20%, 40%, or 60% carbohydrate controlling protein. And that test phase was 20 weeks. So you know, four times as long as our JAMA study, and 
10 times or more as long as most of the studies that were in that NIH meta-analysis. So this study will be of sufficient power and duration to put the carbohydrate insulin model to a definitive test. That we, sounds fascinating. We look forward wait. to sharing those results very soon. Ah, you're just teasing me now. I can't wait to hear those results. And they'll, they'll also be in press. They'll, they'll also be published um, uh, soon as well. Good. Yeah, because that's always a problem too. When when um, a study is presented at a, at a conference, but we don't have all the details, and then the media starts pub, uh, publicizing it about these amazing results, but the devil's sometimes in the details. So I like that it'll be published shortly we're, after. We're, we're actually hoping that they'll be simultaneously Great. published. Great. Published and presented. Now, you said a few things in there that I wanted to touch on. One, it was funded by philanthropy. Now, that's a big problem because not a problem that was funded by philanthropy, but a problem that it needs to be funded by philanthropy. Because if you have a drug trial, no problem getting it funded. Even some studies probably showing calorie in, calorie out, or trying to show that that's, that's um, the paradigm could be funded by industry, right? Because Coca-Cola says just exercise more and drink your Coke and you'll be fine. But funding for a study like this has got to be hard to get. And that's part of why they're not being done because it's such a challenge and expensive to do it correctly. So was that was that one of your bigger challenges, getting the right funding from the right right people? Well, it's terribly short-sighted. You know, as you point out, you know, it, not that any drug study will get funded, but if you're a big a drug company and you have a, a, you know, a new agent that you think is going to be useful for just one obesity-related complication... Uh, you can routinely get funding in the many hundreds of millions of dollars to take it to a phase three clinical trial. You know, you can count on one hand the number of nutrition studies addressing a, a, a di specific dietary hypothesis uh, that are over $100 million. Yeah. And um, it's, you know, it's terribly short-sighted because we're investing a fraction of a cent uh, for every dollar of diet-related disease uh, that uh, the United States and and the you know the rest of the world suffers, um, you know, we we do want the um, funding infrastructure to be skeptical of new ideas. You know, that's the scientific method. You know, very few new ideas will ultimately prove valuable. You know, because the state of science is. Uh, uh, an accumulation of many years of study. And so the next study statistically isn't going to change the paradigm. So we want some skepticism. We just don't want to suppress new ideas. And that's the problem because we clearly uh, need new ideas in obesity and diet-related disease. We're, based on the latest evidence, seeing prevalence rates that are continuing upward. The current mindset of eat less and more, move more has failed. And yet there is uh, an attempt, uh, it seems like an attempt by uh, folks who are in the leadership of the nutrition community to really um, prematurely falsify, uh, dismiss new ideas such as the carbohydrate insulin model with data that are patently not up to the, not up to snuff. I mean, uh, you know, if, if, the folks on this side of the debate were to publish studies of that quality, we would be shot down immediately. And yet these poor quality studies are being used to falsify the model. So, you know, that's not in anybody's interest. We don't want to claim victory or um, 
you know, insist upon defeat prematurely. In fact, this is a little too binary. We want a more nuanced discussion, uh, recognizing that we have a public health crisis that uh, the current mindset is not solved, and whether the carbohydrate insulin model is 90% right or 10% right, um, you know, we need to understand what we can learn from it and not attempt to dismiss these new ideas so facilely. And that's where nutrition science can start to look more like religion than science, and and that's a problem. Well, right. that can be true on both sides. To be fair, I yes. mean, I've you know, in social media, um, just like you know, the calorie in, calorie out folks can be close-minded. The low-carb community has its own dogma, you know, its own accepted uh, ways of dialoguing. I think both sides should really tone down the rhetoric. Uh, aim not to make this ad hominem. It's just, uh, on Twitter, it's just all too common to accuse our opponents of being pig-headed, intentionally pig-headed. And, you know, I don't think they are. I think they may be wrong, but by promoting ad hominem attack, and I've been on the receiving end of ad hominem attack, um, you know, uh, it, it doesn't, it's, it's, it's always a, ad hominem attack is always a distraction yeah. from the science. Let's stay focused on the science, the public health issues, deal with your frustrations. Yeah. People aren't always going to understand. I mean, the, look at the history of science. Some correct ideas have taken decades or centuries to finally be proven. Right. You know, let's have a little maturity here just because, you know, you, you may be right. And the world might not recognize it, but that's not a base. But that's it's not going to help the cause, you know, to attack the other side. You're definitely a voice of reason in in a world that likes polarity because polarity sells. It gets clicks. It gets views. And you the know, more- there's nothing wrong with polarity. We do actually. We need more vigorous debates that clarify the polarity. I, I, one of my other, you know, um, problems with the conventional paradigm is it keeps morphing. You know, every time a new finding comes up, it morphs in a way that tries to account for that finding without having to reassess the basic uh, principle, the basic assumptions of that. So, yes, we need to shine a bright light. Let's have debates that really clarify the polarity, but let's not make it personal. Right. Now, I like something else you said, that maybe the carbohydrate insulin model is 90% right or... 80% 80% right. And, or 10% right. Right. Like it doesn't have to be in all or none. And some people still put it into that camp that, well, if if it's the carbohydrates and insulin, then calories don't matter. Well, calories do still matter. You can still, if you're having 10,000 calories on a low-fat diet, you're still probably not going to lose weight and you're going to overeat. Whereas if you have 800 calories on a low-carb diet, uh, you're still probably going to affect your resting energy expenditure and your metabolic rate. So it... it I don't. I have a personal problem saying it has to be one way or the other. But yet, some people who are very prominent in this field still think it's 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 one way or the other. So, I mean, how do we how do we address that and, and explain that it's not so black and white? We have to remind ourselves that science shouldn't be religion. Yeah, um, you're talking about one of the most complex, multifactorial clinical challenges we have, which is body weight regulation. You know, it's a, we know that it's affected by genes, but also by diet, physical activity, stress, sleep, um, family dynamics, community, uh, the food supply, political and policy decisions. You know, we can all look at one little 
piece of the elephant and um, delude ourselves into thinking that we have the full picture. Some humility is in order here. And as you say, um, it's not that the carbohydrate insulin model acts in defiance of calorie balance. In fact, I've tried to make, you know, we tried to make that point in a recent review uh, that we wrote for JAMA Internal Medicine. Um, it's simply reinterpreting uh, the first law of thermodynamics in a way that's more consistent with the evidence around biology. I mean, of course, humans aren't toaster ovens. Uh, we respond dynamically to changes in calorie balance. And unfortunately, that has been, though well demonstrated in the laboratory, it's neglected in public health and in the clinic. Right. And that gets into the, the issues of how to design a study to measure this. Is it real world, free living people? Is it in a metabolic chamber? Is it only measuring double labeled it's, water? It's all is of it, it, right? It's we need a little bit of all of that, right? Of course, you know, we, we need to understand. Now, the problem has been we've jumped to uh, effectiveness studies prematurely, where you put large numbers of people on different diets, you give them some typically very low intensity nutritional counseling, and then tell them to go follow it. And they, you know, if you're lucky, they will change their diet moderately for a few weeks or a few months. But um, almost invariably by a year, both all groups are eating pretty much the same. Not surprisingly, their weight and their other health outcomes are pretty much the same. But can you conclude then that diets don't matter and it's just a question of compliance? No, that's very sloppy thinking. We would never do that in any other area, biomedical research. Imagine you had a promising new drug for cancer. It could potentially wipe out uh, acute leukemia in children. And you gave one group the drug, uh, prescribed one group the drug, and the other group placebo. But it turned out that you know the kids in the uh, treatment group never got the drug at the right dose at the right time. They maybe had gotten the wrong instructions, or maybe many of the families couldn't afford the drug, or there were some mild, you know, transient side effects that good counseling could have gotten them through, um, but didn't. So it turned out that, you know, the, the drug wasn't taken as uh, intended, and there wasn't a statistically significant difference in cancer outcomes. Would you conclude that the drug was ineffective or that the study was a failure? We need a better quality study to ask these basic questions. You know, we make that mistake in nutrition. We've skipped over mechanisms and especially efficacy, what happens under, under ideal circumstances, and prematurely gone to effectiveness, what happens in the real world, especially when this real world antagonizes healthy behaviors. If we find out that a lower-carb diet is going to be really optimal for uh, a third or a half of the population or two-thirds of the population, then that knowledge will help us design behavioral interventions and in environmental interventions that will help them become more effective. You know, it's not like, you know, you had to understand that smoking caused lung cancer before you could go beyond just telling people not to smoke to developing environmental po policy, uh, environmental-based policy um, actions that actually helped people not smoke. Right. Right. So, Proving it first in an ideal trial, then 
figuring out how to move that to real world scenario. Those are separate questions, separate scientific questions that get confounded all the time. Right. So one of the things in your study that you did was you actually provided food rather than saying, go eat. You actually provided the meals. Is that what you did in your upcoming study as well? Yes. Our recently completed study, which is called uh, the Framingham State Food Study, we did it in collaboration with uh, uh, Framingham State University. Uh, where we could recruit students, staff, and faculty and local community members and feed them through the college kitchen, yeah. uh, the commercial food service. So it was, we took advantages of the synergies. They, the, the food service knew how to make the right, uh, tasty foods and efficient, uh, financially efficient in large volume. We controlled the quality of those foods. And so we were able to test a mechanistically oriented hypothesis. If people actually eat different ways, do you get a difference in metabolism? Yeah. That shows um, sort of a new way of, of doing these studies. Not a new way, but a way it should be done. And I, and I remember you wrote something about that on, on Twitter, about sort of a new paradigm on how to uh, incorporate research and industry, bring them together to help find the answers. And that takes money, of right. course. Although, yeah. you know, we're... In this case, bringing industry in, not with uh, risk for conflicts of interest. It's very different to pair up with a food service uh, provider who has no vested interest in one particular diet, but can serve high-quality foods, much tastier than a metabolic kitchen in a hospital. Um, It's one thing to pair up with them. It's another to pair up with, um, you know, uh, Coca-Cola to do a study as to whether sugary beverages are a good way of preventing dehydration in children. Yet that happens all the time, those types of partnerships yeah. and yeah. funding. Yeah. yeah. So, so we do, um, the NIH has been, um, you know, has, has really, uh, I think, dropped the ball in terms of adequately funding high-quality nutrition research of a sufficient scale and power to definitively address questions that have bedeviled us for a century. So it's really been up to philanthropy to step in and fill that gap. Um, and uh, I think that, uh, you know, uh, if there are any other um, billionaires out there, please uh, come find us at Harvard and we will, we will give you, um, we will do our best to give definitive answers to some of these uh, uh, long-term challenges. Well, so along those lines, there was a philanthropy-funded study run by, well, not run, but um, sort of spearheaded by Gary Taub. So it was a very publicly anticipated NUSI. study with NUSI. Exactly. Okay, so we are we were funded by NUSI. This is this is one of their three initial major studies. Oh, okay. um, there was a study, a pilot study. It was actually a non-randomized uh, pilot study done through the NIH and several collaborators. That was published in AJCN, and uh, despite some spin, it actually showed an advantage to low to the ketogenic diet. See, but that's what I want to talk about. Doubly labeled water and metabolic chamber, the ketogenic diet um, had a metabolic advantage. It wasn't huge, but it was statistically significant in a pilot study that's not powered to get a precise estimate, and it was non-randomized in a way that biased against the low-carb diet. Why? Because everybody got the uh, standard diet first for a month, 
And then they were all, in a non-randomized way, put onto the ketogenic diet. But the experimenters um, miscalculated energy. They wanted to do it at weight stability. They miscalculated. And the participants were at substantial negative energy balance. They were, I think, about 300 or more calories a day. They were losing weight systematically. So this is why you randomize, to cover mistakes like that. In this case, without the randomization, on the conventional diet, their average weight was substantially higher than their weight was on the ketogenic diet. And so, of course, that's going to bias you in terms of total energy expenditure. Despite that, and despite other biases, the low-carb diet still came out advantageously, and yet there was, a, you know, I think it's in a, in a masterful display of spin that was dismissed. Right. The lead investigator said it disproved the carbohydrate insulin model, essentially, like you were saying, like prematurely This, If you look at the registry, that study was specified as an observational pilot study. Yeah. A pilot study can never prove or disprove a hypothesis. That's the nature of it. It's designed to assess study methods and to come up with broad effect estimates that you then definitively test. So that stu NUSI study was, if you reinterpreted it, and we, we did, and you know, we think that if you take into account the biases, then you get a benefit of the low-carb diet in the 200, 250-calorie uh, a day range. And that's quite consistent with what we got in our JAMA study, and we'll be able to compare that to what we got in our, in our new Framingham study. The third study that NUSI funded was the Diet Fit study uh, from Stanford, published in the in Journal of the American Medical Association, in JAMA recently. And that study found a non-significant, non-statistically significant, very small, non-significant advantage to a low-carbohydrate as compared to a low-fat diet. But the low-fat diet, uh, the people on that diet were told to uh, greatly reduce or eliminate all processed foods, but specifically refined grains and added sugars. As a result, the glycemic load, that's the, that's the best determinant of how your blood sugar and insulin will actually change after a meal. It's the product of glycemic index and carbohydrate amount. That um, actually... Um, went down and was uh, as low as other clinical trials, low carbohydrate or low glycemic load group were. And so what this means, I think, is that if you avoid processed carbohydrates, you can do reasonably well on diets with varying macronutrients, relatively more carbohydrate, relatively more fat. It's different if you have type 2 diabetes, but they weren't included in the study. Um, but uh, that's, again, consistent with the carbohydrate insulin model. It's focused on the processed carbohydrates. It's not saying fruits, vegetables, you know, traditional uh, starchy tubers that might have been eaten in the Okinawa diet are the problem. It's focusing on the processed carbohydrates that flooded our diet during the low-fat years and that raise insulin too much. Yeah. So I think that, in a sense, all well, we'll uh, I'm not at liberty to give you the results of our study, but I think we'll see that, uh, that there are consistencies uh, among uh, the results that, uh, uh, of the studies funded by NUSI. And, and I like that you clarified not 
considering type 2 diabetes patients because in those people, the fruit, the tubers, that can be too much of a, of a glucose load and an insulin response for them. But for the general, more metabolically healthy population, then that's not the evil that we're talking about so far. And um, clearly the world can't give up all carbohydrates, all grains. I mean, with uh, why not? we're getting 10 billion, there just aren't enough animals uh, for 10 billion humans to, um, you know, to eat. So, you know, you need grains to feed that many people. You know, this is not, we're not hunter-gatherers anymore. Um, the question is, what are those grains? Are they minimally processed? Right. And can we also, because, you know, these traditional, like the traditional sourdough breads that were made with less finely ground uh, flours and that were fermented over a long time, so a lot of that rapidly available carbohydrate got digested and turned into organic acids, which are very beneficial, that's really different than Wonder Bread. And we can also be shifting to a more um, agriculture that produces more healthy fats, you know, avocado, nuts, you know, dark chocolate, you know, these are all delicious and um, very nourishing and can also help to feed the world's 10 billion people. So with our current state of policy with the farm bill and who they supplement and who they benefit and with our current industry structure and our current medical community, how do we get there from here? It seems like there are so many roadblocks and you've been involved with policy and and trying to affect things. How, what do you see as the necessary steps we need to start taking to get there? Well, first is what we're doing. We have to understand what the science tells us about how the human body is designed and how to care for and feed it so that it doesn't uh, all too often develop these metabolic breakdowns, you know, in the 50s or 60s, or as we discussed at the beginning of the session, sometimes, you know, in, in a person's teens. So we've got to understand the science, including whether there's susceptibility differences based on our genes or our other biological factors. Uh, we're especially interested in insulin secretion, but that's another story. Um, so what's, what's, What's right for the general population? Are there major subgroups that need to be specially treated, such as people with type 2 diabetes, which is highly pre- prevalent, so it's, it's a public health issue? And then I think we begin to look for um, collaborations of common interest. You know, one obvious place to look is the insurance industry. Right. They're spending a fortune, an increasingly a fortune, on preventable diseases. If uh, the investment of $10 in uh, good nutrition or infrastructure change or policy could produce $100 of economic benefit, lower medical costs, but also then to employers, um, greater worker productivity, less days lost in illness due to diet-related diseases, I think you've suddenly counterbalanced the power of big pharma and um, the food industry. And so we need to begin to develop alliances that are going to help us create policies that are in the greatest common good for society, not just the special interests that inordinately, inordinately have access to politicians in power. Right. Very good point. And some people have proposed factoring in the 
downstream health cost of certain foods into the price of that food. And I don't see how that's necessarily practical, that's, but that's, that's sort that's of a mindset. A P, that's called a Pigovian tax, and it's well-established capitalist principle. You know, yeah. you can't just create a product that, uh, let's say it produces a lot of pollution. Let's just make it very simple. You know, you've got a pig farm that's creating massive lagoons of toxic waste. You can't sell those products really cheaply and then expect somebody else to deal with the environmental disaster of that, you know, waste lagoon, as is oftentimes the case. So a Pagovian tax, which is now used, you know, across the country with cigarettes, says we need to have some of the long-term costs of that product, such as taking care of people's emphysema or lung cancer, included in the price. So it doesn't fall back on the pop population. That's as capitalist an idea of you know, market uh, responsibilities as you can get. But and I think we problem, do need more of that. But uh, Yeah, and I agree, but when it's well done, and the, and the caveat there is there's so much epidemiology and observational studies that this type of tax, I think, would be based on. And so, so many studies say increasing meat intake is going to increase your risk of, risk of heart disease and cancer. And those are frequently promoted by the School of Public Health at Harvard. And that fact that doesn't factor in sort of the reduced quality of that science. The studies we've been talking about so far are controlled studies, prospective studies, not these retrospective studies looking at societies with healthy user bias and confounding variables and with entirely too small hazard ratios that then make these broad sweeping conclusions. So my concern is if we do go down that route, we're going to be facing a meat tax because of what these poor epidemiology okay, right, studies on, show. So, um, let I, let's, so I think you've just conflated two important okay. issues. One issue is what the evidence base suggests and you know, does um, do taxes that, or subsidies that fairly balance the long-term costs on the price of the product, are those an appropriate policy measure when the science indicates? And I think the answer is yes, and it sounded like we might agree on that. I agree on that. A second question is what do you need to get an adequate knowledge base for action? Yes. And so that... It's a whole nother debate. And we, you know, um, there are issues with observational research, but there's also, there's also problems with clinical trials. Do you know that there was never a clinical trial to this day that shows reduction of lung cancer from uh, cigarette, uh, from smoking cessation interventions? There's never been one. Yet we all agree that it's a true cause and effect, and it's a huge cause and effect. So why? Why has no, despite attempts to find it, why has no clinical trial ever seen it? Hmm. Well, th those are the limitations of a clinical right. trial. You didn't get complete compliance. Um, you got wash in and wash out. Um, and you are looking at effects that take uh, decades in some cases to emerge. And so... Um, study. So just because something, um, just because a clinical trial doesn't show it, or it, or alternatively, if it shows it, doesn't mean it's true. There are limitations on both sides, and I think it's become fashionable among the low carb community to focus exclusively on the limitations of observational research and not those of interventional research. Um, both have a place. You know, there are many questions that will never be answered by a clinical trial. We just have to understand 
good op, good epi from bad epi, just right. as we understand good clinical trials from bad clinical trials, as we were discussing earlier. Right. So smoking is considered good epi because the hazard ratio is above three, three and a half, is one of the reasons why. And and there's a dose response yeah. effect, and you know these Bradford Hill criteria that it meets. Whereas saturated fats, red meat, a lot of the nutritional ones don't even come close to that level of epi yet. The Harvard School of Public Health reports these these studies over and over again, probably overstating what they can prove. Does that does that bother you? Well, um, I I'm in favor of uh, appropriate interpretation of all data, and I also I want to say that there's no monolithic Harvard School of Public Health. Good there point. are investigators who have a diversity of opinions, including those who have published explicitly stating that uh, uh, the prior recommendations on saturated fat were overblown and that saturated fat has no, uh, uh, doesn't, in the context of a conventional diet, doesn't increase cardiovascular disease risk. Um, you know, I've got, an, I've got a, uh, an appoint, a secondary appointment at the School of Public Health, and I'm on record as saying uh, in the comparison between white bread and butter, butter's the healthier component. Um, even if you say that sat, and this leads to many topics that are going to be beyond our capacity today, but you know, I I do think that saturated fat in the context of a high carb carbohydrate diet is a big problem. I think the epi's the epi consistently shows that, and I think that's a true. Those are true associations. Um, that doesn't mean that saturated fat on a low carb diet is going to do the same thing. And in fact, it, uh, I think likely won't. You have to be eating more sat. You can vary the amount of saturated fat you eat on a low-carb diet, but it's inevitably going to be higher. But when you're not eating a lot of carbohydrate, that saturated fat, as uh, Steve Finney says, to use his metaphor, goes to the front line of oxidation, and it doesn't stay around as long. And there you get compensatory changes in triglycerides and HDL and chronic inflammation. So I think we do a disservice in both directions, including among the low-carb community, of totally dismissing any adverse effects of saturated fat in a conventional high-carbohydrate diet. Right. I think that's, that's a mistake. Well, as usual, I, I really appreciate your perspective and the way that you, you really have a, a great way of seeing both sides of the coin and trying to bring them together to make a reasonable decision and trying to further the science in a way that will help answer these questions. Not that it has to be one way or the other, but that we need a true answer to help our patients and help us understand the complexity of this. So thank you very Great. much for and, that. You know, and I, I just want to say, it's wonderful that you as a cardiologist are taking the deep dive on these issues. Um, I think you, you'll be able to do so with a perspective and a credibility that's uh, oftentimes, you know, lacking. And uh, so congratulations on your work. Well, thank you. I appreciate that very much. So where can people go to learn more about you and, and hear more about what your thoughts? And Great. You well, if you are, I, I don't know when this is coming out, but uh, if you can come to the Obesity Society meetings in, um, in Nashville uh, in mid-November, uh, we'd love to see you there for a presentation of our data. Otherwise, follow me on social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook. I'm David Ludwig, MD. Um, and you can also find all of my links at my website, which is drdavidludwig.com. That's drdavidludwig.com. Great. Well, Dr. David Ludwig, thank you so much for okay. joining me Great. today. It was a pleasure. <laughs>